Welcome to How We Win, the official podcast of The Persistence. Action is the best antidote for anxiety, and we can all make a difference right now. Today, we talk about why protecting our citizens is good with gun laws, with checks on financial institutions, and with our environment, and why deregulation is not so good. Looking at you, SVB in East Palestine. And then we've got a really powerful interview with Brittany Pedersen, a freshman Congress member from Colorado who's overcome incredible obstacles to make it to DC and is using her lived experience to lead. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez Ancona. And And this this is How How We Win. Win. Another week. Here we are, Jennifer. How are you? Hello. <laughs> I'm doing fine. How are you doing these days? Oh, doing doing just fine. <laughs> trying to stay dry here in California. I know. You know what was interesting is mm. there was not a lot of traffic on the roads today. And I think mm. it might be Californians are getting used to driving in the rain. Mm. Like actually not just getting into a crash every time. You get on the road if there's water coming from the sky. Is that what you mean? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It used to be if there was like a mist, everyone would just freak out and not drive like maniacs. But I think people are starting to learn the art of driving in the rain. I think that's a book and a movie too. That sounds like it. That's a, that's that's good news. <laughs> well, I know I'm I'm hopeful for the folks who are dealing with flooding that it's not too bad. I know I've seen some of those reports, so it's always it's been a mixed mixed bag of good that we're getting rain, but it's tough that we don't have the right system set up, and so we're seeing a lot of impacts as well. Absolutely, yeah. We've been talking about like the crazy snow and how beautiful it is, but also how apocalyptic it is. And we've had people who have been trapped and and, um, and now there are mm-hmm. communities that have been flooded uh, by uh, levees being breached, levees that we have found out in recent reporting uh, were known to be not in the best shape for years and years and years. And there was literally reporting that the decision to fix them was made because the communities were not affluent I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that's Mm. egregious and shouldn't happen anywhere. So uh, hearts are are out to everyone who is uh, struggling with this and um, and hopefully we'll we'll have an end to this atmospheric river in the next day or two. Yeah, I hope so. Took a turn there. I was keeping it light (laughs) about people driving on the road. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Um, So there's a lot of news this week, Steve. There's a lot. I feel like there's a lot going on. Um, But we can talk about something kind of hopeful that happened today in Monterey Park. As we know, Biden has been talking a lot about wanting to do more on gun violence. It's something that he's talked about in the State of the Union. He's been talking about it since every time there's a a big tragedy. And of course, with this current Congress, there's just not much that he can do there. And he knows that. So today, he announced in Monterey Park and what sounded like and read like a beautiful, actually a memorial type of ceremony, uh, announced a new executive order tackling gun violence. So incredible. And um I'm co-opting this a little bit later on for my reason for hope because uh, there are things that we can do. This executive order 
like all of our our gun efforts, you know, is a piece of it and not nearly enough, but it will save lives. Like that should be our our focus is saving lives. And and none of this is anything that the great swath of Americans uh, disagrees with. In fact, 90% of Americans, including gun owners, including Republicans, including NRA members are for, you know, background checks and common sense gun regulations. So uh, this is an executive order to make sure that people are complying with the existing laws and um, and enforcing that. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like you said, it's, it's not going to solve all the problems. There's much more that needs to be done. And so it, I, what I hope is that it does actually become more of a real issue in the campaign, in the 2024 campaign, because that is the moment when we can choose to elect a different set of people who can actually take this a lot further. But I was really glad to see that action. It's it's just great to see our leaders taking action, even on issues like this that are so hard. I just really appreciate that something is being done to move things forward. Absolutely. And, um, and it doesn't happen on its own. It doesn't happen yeah. without uh, pressure. It doesn't happen Absolutely. without public making noise. And uh, so uh, whenever anything like this happens, I just want to thank our listeners, thank all the volunteers, everyone who uh, is a Moms Demand Action or an Everytown member or a Brady Group member and has been out there, you know, the March for Our Lives, young organizers, everyone who, who makes these actions happen. Because if we don't make noise, it doesn't happen. And I was actually in Sacramento yesterday uh, with a, a whole bunch of Moms Demand Action and every town members who uh, had an advocacy day where they were going and knocking on doors of legislators and making sure that they uh, pass more gun legislation. We, we've got a lot of good stuff going on here in California, but of course, um, compared to the rest of the world, uh, we have very loose gun laws. So um, yeah. there's a lot more to do. Yeah, absolutely. That's cool to hear, though, that that, that action was happening in, in the state capitol. And I, I 100% agree with you that you we can never stop with the, the pushing that has to happen on the movement side. And I really feel that from the, the Moms Demand Action folks, et cetera. N- none of this would be possible without their work. Nope. Agree. Love me some Shannon Watts and her incredible work too. <laughs> shout yeah. Out, shout out shout to out our friends. Yep. Um, well, uh, there's also a lot, of, like you said, there's so much stuff in the news, and we were trying to parse through how to talk about it. Um, everyone has known by now that the second largest bank failure in our history happened with Silicon Valley Bank going belly up and having mm-hmm. to be rescued uh, by this administration. Um, not for nothing, hand raised here. Uh, you can't see me, listeners. I'm raising up my hand because uh, I happen to bank with Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> so to see my uh, oh, my wow. bank account frozen over the weekend and not able to access the app or get to my any of my money was um, a little jarring. But uh, thanks to a speedy action by the federal government and this administration, um, everything is okay. Those funds are now accessible and we are changing our banks. Um, but there's, there's so much about this, uh, that stems from Trump deregulating these financial institutions. I mean, these guardrails are put up, uh, for good reason. I guess the right was blaming woke 
culture for this bank failing somehow? Yeah, it was really rich, you know, um, while the, at the same time, these VCs were, you know, <laughs> running around like stoking fears of a nationwide bank run, you know, that they claimed would happen if SVP, if SVB deposit holders weren't made whole, um, you know, at the same time, they're, they're lobbying and angling for a bailout. It's just the whole thing is just too much. So um, the hypocrisy is rich, but we can't, we don't want to talk about the hypocrisy because that's not actually that helpful. But the <laughs> point is, rather than address what's actually going on, which is this is this is a Republican issue. I mean, they they believe in deregulation. That has been a cornerstone of what they have always put forward. Um, the the people like Peter Thiel, who have funded the rise of Trump, who pulled all their money out of SVB, made all their VCs pull their money out, caused this problem, you know? It's just unbelievable. So now, rather than, you know, of course, deal with any of that, the right is very on message right now with the boogeyman for why we we can point to how this happened, which is um, wokeness. <laughs> so mm. we heard it from Ron DeSantis. We heard it from Donald Trump. We heard it from a number of... Uh, Congress people, Republican Congress people and senators over the past few days that they're for no real reason other than just to say they're so concerned about political correctness and DEI that they diverted from their mission. You know, it's like or you could just point to the Republican who actually caused this for a particular exact reason to yeah. upend the financial market for his own gain. You know. <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's just, just it is so yeah. infuriating and maddening and cr just utterly crazy that the right would co-opt this as a culture war issue and that it would work that people would hang on to this you know and you know they're banning books they're banning our history and saying that we're too woke they used to call us snowflakes but they're the ones who are so fucking sensitive that they can't even listen to the reality of our history and and learn from it and uh and it's because they're fascists who want to gain power and if we hold on to our history then we'll see them coming even clearer so um yeah. but yeah no totally agree i it's it's in it's maddening but i also think what's interesting is they i don't know that they have won i think it's an active i think it's an active debate right now because um i don't know if you saw but earlier this week or maybe last week there was a national poll that usa today did and they actually asked voters to choose between two definitions of the term woke mm. and 56 percent you know definitely a majority chose the definition to be informed educated on and aware of social injustice so actually chose the positive definition of woke whereas the negative definition which is what the right is peddling into its culture war right now was about you know being being overtly overly politically correct and policing others words so that's like the negative uh, connotation but so we're actually winning the argument right now in the minds of voters but we're not you're right that it's dangerous and we're not going to keep winning if we don't actually make that case to people like to you know we have to as democrats not run away from the issue or duck the issue or think we're going to get away with just talking about kitchen table issues and not addressing that stuff when it's like in the conversation right now you know it's 
in Chris Rock's special that everyone's watching. It's like in a lot of different cultural places right now. We have to we have to pay attention to it and we have to figure out actually how to talk to people about it in a way that I think promotes that idea of a positive way of thinking about it rather than a a negative yeah trigger, you know. I totally agree with you. Um I did see that poll 56% it's great. That's a majority. Um, I think that's about where our country's at right now with our, mm. with our split in general. Mm-hmm. And that's great because that's a majority and that bodes well for elections coming up, you know. Um, yeah, no, there's a lot of work to do, though. But, yeah, fi- but 56 percent is uh, still about half the country. And um, we are so ripped in half right now, and there's a lot of work to do. And you would think something, an issue like this would be unifying because this isn't Mm -hmm. about left or right. This is about our basic humanity. It's about our history, and it's about people's lived experience and being in touch with that, listening to each other, being Mm -hmm. conscious of each other. Like Mm -hmm. these are human tenets. And that it's mm-hmm. been co-opted in this uh, culture war that has divided us so much is um, it's hard, hard to reconcile. So I don't mean to sound yeah. unhopeful because I know I'm supposed to be the hopey guy. 56 is great. <laughs> 56, 50 plus one wins every <laughs> 50 plus one wins every election. So I'm happy about that. But um, we, we have a long way to go. Uh, yeah. The other thing that I want to say really quick is I want to bring up, we don't talk about Lakoff very much, but, um, you know, uh, there's there's some things that, that he really did right, you know, mm-hmm. when he talks about messaging. And one thing that I always like is framing uh, protections rather than regulations. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that, you know, the Republicans will always call call them industry killing regulations business mm-hmm. killing regulations but yeah. um, but it's important to call these uh, these laws out as protections environmental protections yeah. uh, consumer protections you know protecting our health protecting our clean water systems right you know it's a, a important distinction to be to be made because that's what they are and um, and when Trump goes in there and rips up those protections that we have uh, it mm-hmm. makes people's lives uh, harder it it can kill people um, and yeah. uh, it can crumble our financial institutions so yeah I love that I think you know we've had this we've had two really visceral examples just in the last few weeks with the bank collapse that we just talked about but then also the East Palestine train derailment those those are two examples of where taking away those protections have had huge impacts to people's lives and it, it is real and so I, I agree with you they've won the framing they won the framing war on that a long time ago so it's now our chance to I think take these examples that have happened and and talk about it in a different way and hopefully build the different kind of coalition around this idea hopefully we can ultimately kill that idea. <laughs> honestly, uh, because it's so, so toxic and so, so painful to our entire country that the idea, I mean, we don't, it's just this, like, um, I liked this meme of like, a um, iceberg under the surface because it's, you just don't know when it's going to pop up at any given point. You don't know where we're going to hit on some of this lack of protection against corporations to actually, 
protect us as as citizens of this country. Um, it could happen at any moment. And it could happen in so many places because of that long history that the Republicans have put forward. Yep. All right. Well, um, we just scratched the surface of the news of the week. There's so much more, but um, we've got a really amazing and impactful interview coming up with uh, Representative Pedersen. She's got an incredible story. So we want to get to that. Uh, First, let's talk about our to-do list. We've been talking about this. It's coming up just a few weeks on April 4th is the Wisconsin uh, Supreme Court election. Talk about protecting our democracy, creating some protections there. Uh, It Mm -hmm. is pivotal that um, we do not have a conservative majority in Wisconsin that can rule on electors, that could literally overturn the results of the the election in this pivotal state. Among many other things, this uh, election is crucial. Uh, I'm going to put a link in our show notes, but you can just go to swingleft.org going to send you straight to our friends at Swing Left because they still have letter writing opportunities. You can also phone bank with them. If you're in the area, you can get hooked up to go uh, canvassing, go knock on some doors. Super fun. Get outside, enjoy some fresh air and talk to some neighbors. Um, Lots of opportunities to help out. So just go to swingleft.org and we'll have that in our show notes as well. Can I make a quick plug, too, for if you want to make donations, the Wisconsin Democratic Party is a great place to put resources. Um, and I don't know, it's important right now because the um, there was a story, I don't know, a couple of days ago about a bunch of insurrectionists pouring millions of dollars into the Wisconsin election to try to swing it. Mm. An organized group of insurrectionist donors actually getting together to try to influence that election. So in addition to all the organizing we're going to do, throwing a little bit of money uh, to the state party, which is working on it, would also be great. Absolutely donate to them. But that tells you everything you need to know about this election, that insurrectionists are paying attention and pouring money into it because the insurrectionists know if they want to stage another insurrection, they need the Wisconsin Supreme Court on their side. So let's make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about our reasons for hope. What was your reason for hope this week? My reason for hope was the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once, which was one of the best movies I've seen in a long time, just cleaning up at the Oscars. It was amazing to see this multiracial team of the Daniels winning all these awards for their amazing movie. Um, And Michelle Yeoh being the first Asian-American woman ever to win Best Actress, only the second woman of color ever to win Best Actress. Yeah. It's just incredible. I love seeing the, ba- the barriers broken. I loved a lot of the speeches that they all made. They were so heartfelt and yeah. sweet. So it was just very warm and fuzzy and definitely gives me hope that, um, you know, we can actually reward, you know, great art and celebrate a, di- a picture of diverse cast you know, really making an amazing commentary about what we're all doing here on this crazy planet. Absolutely. I was going to say that my reason for hope was I was going to co-opt Biden's an- announcement. Um, so that is my reason for hope. But I also just want to talk about the Oscars, too, because I I got, you know, verklempt a number of times watching it. We got really teary watching those speeches, I thought it was one of the best Oscars that I had seen in a long time, hmm. uh, especially coming off of, 
a, you know, one that we're still talking about um, with the slap heard around the world. Um, It was just so moving. I thought the speeches were great. You're you're absolutely right. Like seeing Michelle Yao win that award and her beautiful speech to all the boys and girls who, you know, thought this day wouldn't be possible for them, you know. I I also saw like older actors, you know, who have been around for a long time really getting recognized too, which uh, was really wonderful. And um, it's what the fascists come for first is the arts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, these are our, our storytellers, our truth tellers, the ones who make us see the world in different ways. And the work that they do is really, really important. And I don't want to get all high and mighty over over the Oscars and over over the movies, but um, but it is, uh, you know, for our mental health to get a little break, for escapism, to let us get snapshots into worlds that are not our own and a deeper understanding of other people's lived experiences. And, and then to see, as you said, this great diversity, you know, winning these awards and celebrating. It was just very, very moving. I, I thought it was great. Yes, it is all very important. I loved it, too. And I can't wait to get into your interview with Congresswoman Patterson. So let's hear it. Brittany Patterson is the representative for Colorado's 7th Congressional District. Just elected in 2022, she is the first woman to represent her district. She is a member of the House Financial Services Committee, where she serves on the Subcommittee on Housing and Insurance and the Subcommittee on National Security, Illicit Finance, and International Financial Institutions. Before coming to Congress, she was uh, in the Colorado State Legislature for a decade. Representative Patterson, thank you so much for joining our show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. It's really nice to see you. I got to uh, meet you and your wonderful family in D.C. when you were there for orientation week. Yes, that was uh, quite the whirlwind going right in from a competitive election to figuring out our trip to D.C. and who was going to take care of Davis. So (laughs) (laughs) I think the whole lobby bar took care of Davis at that at that point. Oh, yeah, that's true. (laughs) Um, He was going around playing with everybody. So, uh, yeah, definitely an adventure with the three year olds. But we make it work. Yeah. Or so far, we've figured it out. (laughs) Well, he's a really sweet boy. And uh, and your husband, Ian's amazing, too. Yes, I have such an incredible partner, and I could not do this job without him. Can uh, can we talk about his activism and what he does in terms of being an influencer and uh, his social media presence and and all of that? Or is yeah, that or is that, or is that like a behind the scenes like clandestine <laughs> thing? No, no, he's uh, he's well known in Colorado, and my husband and I we actually met. I waved him down on the street corner. After working for the Obama campaign, I was working for uh, Save the Children in the freezing cold uh, clipboarder, you know, the the people that <laughs> try to stop you on the street. Yeah. And it was in the freezing cold, making five fifteen an hour and waved him down and asked him if he had a moment to save the children. And that's how <laughs> I met my husband. But we've been in the trenches together for uh, for a very long time, working for candidates that we believe in and issues and and he's supported me every step uh, through this career that I've chosen. 
Well, you are an amazing family. Let's talk about you, though. Uh, you come from a working class family, and you were the first in your family to graduate from both high school and college. What got you into public service? What was that first thing that sort of propelled you into action? Yeah, that's it's a, you know, being in this position, walking around the halls in the Capitol and thinking about where I come from and how unlikely I am to be here. I kind of pinch myself every day. And and it was really um, the opportunities that I had to build a better life that inspired me to get involved in, in politics. I grew up in South Jefferson County and, and I represent Jefferson County now and, and live here with my family. Um, and it's a community that has given me every opportunity that I've had in my life. It was my access to public schools and amazing teachers that believed in me and having that safe place to go that as a high-risk youth that faced a lot of struggles at home, uh, I was able to actually build the skills and, and experiences um, that I needed to, to go a much different path than I was likely to go. And so what inspired me to get involved is I know that the public investments that we make in critical services like the public schools and uh, leveling the playing field, making sure that no matter who you are and where you come from, you should have the opportunity to succeed. I'm a product of that American dream, and we continue to see that dwindle day after day and, and uh, year after year with failed policies. And so I started getting involved uh, trying to fight for the next generation to have the same same chance that I did. I uh, definitely never thought I would run for office. I started working for candidates. Uh, I, was, I was actually an organizer in the Obama 2008 campaign, and that's where mm -hmm. I learned how to effectively organize and bring people together to, um, to win elections. And that was a critical experience um, in my career on, on building those skills and, and that inspiration that I got from him uh, back then. And continuing to work for candidates and issues that I believed in and ultimately stepping up myself in 2012 when a seat opened up. So I have uh, had a tough path, but also feel incredibly lucky to be in the position that I am fighting every day, bringing those life experiences that are far too often not represented in Congress. Wow. I, I love that. And yes, Obama was uh, an inspiring guy, is still an inspiring guy. <laughs> Yes, I am a huge fan. So, uh, you know, I always want to tell one day, I hope I get to tell him personally that, you know, I, I felt pretty hopeless after jo George Bush won for a second time. Mm -hmm. And I was like every other apathetic young person I talked to who feels like their voice didn't, doesn't matter and that they can't affect change. And he made me believe in what was possible. And, and I never wanted to have any regrets on election night, I wanted to know that I worked and did everything I could to help him succeed. So uh, he really started this this path for me, and and I hope I get to tell him that one day. I bet you will. I think you will. Um, and I, <laughs> I love I love your organizer roots to your organizer spirit. Um, I, I talked to you a little bit about this um, when we when we met. Um, but uh, it's part of your story uh, and sort of informs how you govern, I'm sure. Um, your mom had a back injury and was prescribed very large amounts of opioids, which led to a decades-long addiction. I got sober when I was 19. I struggled uh, with uh, substance use when I was a teenager. But 
you know, I've been sober now for 31 years. Opioids weren't around when I was getting sober. It was hard to get sober, but opioids are, are a whole nother thing, um, which you know intimately. This this experience has given you an understanding of what families are facing all over the country with our opioid and mental health crisis. Um, so what did you learn from that experience that informs your policy goals right now? Yes, um, thank you so much, Steve. And I remember you sharing your story and struggle when when you went through that early on. And, and yeah, my mom, it, it's really through my experience from seeing the policy failures at every level from the beginning when she hurt her back and went to uh, the doctor and, and went home with bottles and bottles of opioids and, uh, you know, her back injury healed, uh, but she found herself being physically addicted to prescription drugs. And uh, like so many people, my mom is went through the unfortunate systemic um, disruption that the pharmaceutical companies brought when they tried to create an incentive for overprescribing. And it was the beginning and this was started in the 80s. And so my mom uh, was one of the people whose life completely changed because of of those policies. And I didn't, you know, I was I was six and I didn't know at the time what was happening. I thought my mom was just really tired. Um, I thought it was normal to fall asleep with cigarettes and, um, and you know, fall asleep at the wheel and, and everything else that comes with it uh, until I, you know, started to um, become a little bit older. I, you know, my earlier memories are going with her to the methadone clinic and waiting in line in the freezing cold in downtown Denver before school. And, and, uh, and even that was the only option that she had was access to medication-assisted treatment, but it was so hard to get that she ultimately um, wasn't able to continue that, and it was so expensive. Um, so the barriers were really high for MAT back then. And so uh, my mom, like so many people, when she was cut off of her prescription without access to the treatment and recovery services that she needed, she started using heroin to avoid withdrawal. And uh, my mom often says that when you're addicted, you fear withdrawal more than you do death. And you will do absolutely anything to to avoid going through that physically. And it is through my mom's experience from the beginning through decades of, of watching her, uh, you know, my mom has a brain disease. She had a, she needed um, medical, urgent medical attention uh, that we don't provide in the United States. And I ultimately, uh, fentanyl started coming into the supply chain in 2016. And no, it didn't just start happening because Biden's president. This is <laughs> right. Um, yeah. This has been something that has started to seep in first hitting the coast and then coming into Colorado and ultimately taking over the supply chains of, of all of our drugs across the nation and globally because it's easier to traffic and it's it's more potent and it's it's cheap. So the cartels have moved towards, you know, just pushing fentanyl. So it came into the supply chain in 2016 and uh, she started overdosing at a really high rate because of how unpredictable it was. And, and it was in the, the heroin that she was buying. So mm -hmm. she wasn't seeking out 
fentanyl. It was just laced in, in a, started to come show up being laced in everything. And that year, my mom, I overdosed 20 times and was begging for help. And it was one of the most. How, uh, how old were you at that point? I was in, oh my gosh, let's see. I think at that point I was 37 or, or, uh, or 36. Okay. I was in the legislature and it's, it's a miracle that my mom has lived this long. You know, she started being hospitalized when I was 12 years old from, um, from, you know, organs starting to fail because of her addiction. So my mom is uh, very strong <laughs> to still be here, Sounds but like it. yeah, but she was begging for help with nowhere to go, and it was one of the most hopeless feelings that I've ever had. Even looking back at what I went through decades before that, because she was finally saying the the words I waited my entire life to hear, to hear, and there was nowhere to send her. We didn't have options for people like my mom in Colorado. The wait lists were uh, enormous there. It's where I saw firsthand that Medicaid doesn't cover substance use disorder treatment and recovery services and detox. And so I watched her being churned in and out of the ER and the state of Colorado and the federal government spending a million, over a million dollars keeping her alive for one year in the ER just to make sure that, you know, her heart was beating and she was breathing and then sending her right back out without access to the care that she needed. So it was just fiscally irresponsible and it was morally reprehensible. Um, it was just devastating to watch. So as a policymaker in this un- in a unique position to try to change things and, and share my story and my fight to save my mom's life, I was able to get her the care that she needed because I had access to the top experts in the state. We had to get a court order in just to get her treatment covered. And she went through, um, finally got the help that she needed. And my mom now has been in recovery for five and a half years. And so together we've taken our story to fight to change the system, to increase access to the treatment and the medical support that people like my mom need. She talks about uh, when she finally, I mean, you think about decades of being addicted. Yeah. She could finally start remembering things again, feeling mm. things again. She she talks about it being like the fog lifting from her the fog lifting where all of a sudden um you know she her brain was healing is what physically was happening. Um and she was able to actually have a chance after months of getting the support that she needs. Now she works at the place that saved her life, giving back to people like her who are struggling. Um, so my mom is not only uh, not a burden on our system, she's also um, giving back. She has a job and is is part of our lives. So uh, our story, if what my mom has overcome is possible with the right treatment and support, um, anything is possible. So I've taken that experience fighting to save my mom in a broken system to to change things in Colorado, and and I look forward to leading on that here nationally it's so uh i'm so happy to hear that she's you know doing well um being sober for five years of course it's a day at a time as i know too but um that is remarkable 
especially in light of everything that she's been through. Uh, and you, too. I mean, the, the toll that it takes on the family is immense. And as heartbreaking and difficult as your story is to hear, it is way too common. Uh, here in California, where I am, the same story over and over again, where the family finally hears those words that they want to hear, that I need help, that I want to go somewhere, and there's no beds, and there's no place to take them. So um, it, we are woefully under-resourced federally and on a state level to deal with this crisis. And uh, obviously the pandemic has made it even worse uh, and, and our mental, crisis, uh, mental health crisis uh, has just compounded that. So, Absolutely. This is – it's crushing to see what happened as soon as we went into our stay-at-home orders, the amount of people even in my neighborhood um, – people who had been in recovery, who um, whose families lost a loved one because, you know, they were they were isolated and they had increased anxiety and they went to ultimately use the thing that they used to go to in the past um, to try to feel better. And so many people overdosing uh, during that time. And so it, we have a lot of, of work to do to get back to pre-pandemic levels. But also when you look at it, fentanyl taking over the supply chain, um, now it is an even much more lethal proposition to not help support people now. Yeah. It's terrifying. I mean, I have a daughter who's 20 years old uh, in college right now, and, and she's, you know, got a good head on her shoulders. She's, she's um, you know, uh, obviously, I am I probably am way too paranoid given my history. I'm always on her about, you know, her partying, but she doesn't do much. But with fentanyl everywhere, like one, you know, one thing that she has could be laced and, and, and that's it. It's terrifying. So. I'm glad you were. I'm really glad you were there. Uh, I I believe that uh, I believe in people serving with lived experience. Um, you know, there's uh, a common bond and a common understanding that people, even with great empathy, just can't uh, grasp. Uh, and it's important that you're there. So thank you for for bringing your story to Congress. Um, I'll just say on that too. You talk about how important it is to have people with lived experiences, and you're absolutely right because. No matter what type of ally you intend to be, you're just fundamentally never going to understand the system, the systemic failures to be able to be the advocate and voice if you haven't gone through that or, or worked in it. And so that's why, you know, it is it is very unlikely that I would be here with a mom who struggles with a heroin addiction and that I have this unique opportunity and empathy or people like my mom who have a brain disease, who are struggling, who deserve to have the support and care that they and to be treated with dignity. Yeah. Uh, and you know, some people come out of it with parents who struggle with addiction with a much different take than that than the empathy that I have um, from going through that with my mom, but also fighting to save her life in a system that was completely failing. Uh, most people. Yeah. We've got a lot of work to do both on the state and federal level across the country, but um, uh, we will keep doing it. Um, 
All right. So speaking of the federal level, uh, we talked about our first meeting at um, Orientation Week. Uh, you're a freshman representative coming into this MAGA-controlled majority. Uh, I mean, you served in the legislature for 10 years, so I would imagine you know how to coexist with people who carry vastly different views and goals. But this particular Congress is really completely off the rails. So um, kind of a dumb question, but what's your experience been like so far? Well, <laughs> it has, you know, the the first week, um, my family flew out for our swearing in event. And, and <laughs> right. And uh, my son was on the floor with us. And that was just the beginning of, uh, I think, the example of, of what's to come in the, in the coming two years. Yeah. Um, it's been very frustrating to see not just the dysfunction within the caucus and the polarization with the, the small percentage, the smaller percentage of people who are very far right and are completely taking over the the rest of their ability, uh, you know, some of the Republicans that do actually want to work across the aisle and solve some of this, it makes it nearly impossible. And uh, Kevin McCarthy basically had to negotiate everything away with uh, to them. So I, it is definitely going to be a wild ride. I've been disappointed with the priorities and the legislation that they brought so far when we, you know, when I was, I've represented part of Jefferson County for the last 10 years. And, and then also through my time campaigning over the last year, you don't hear people talking about, you know, we know that, that protecting reproductive health care is a top priority in yeah. the United States. That was one of the first things. It's not just, you know, they uh, going after access to reproductive health care, not addressing rising costs for families and actually bringing real solutions when people are hurting right now. Uh, not uh, so many urgent threats that this country is facing. And we're, you know, they're bringing gotcha bills on the floor uh, to to hurt people in their reelection uh, instead of solving problems for right. regular people. So, yes, it has been uh, very concerning. I think it's important to highlight this for the American people because we need we need people that are interested in governing and uh, you might not always agree, but it is we need the people who are going to try to roll up their sleeves and, and do the real work that this job deserves. Um, so I have in the legislature, I always did build unlikely friends and <laughs> uh, relationships um, across the aisle. You know, when you start to get to know people as people and their stories and where they come from and right. why they have the beliefs that they do and um, start building friendships, it really helps understand other people's experiences and perspectives. And it also builds their uh, their knowledge of, of where you come from and why you believe what you believe. And I, I can tell you that me telling my story around the opioid epidemic, I was able to bring a lot of Republicans along with me on expanding Medicaid coverage for substance use disorder treatment in a Republican Senate majority. Um, because of the relationships that I had and people listening to what I'd gone through and, and bringing that, those personal um, experiences. And so I think it's 
you know, there, there are some people that I'm not going to ever be able to work with, uh, (laughs) but I would say, you know, I'm working now to to try to build those bridges with some of the freshmen that are coming in. Uh, We have a very large class of new members and hopefully hoping to change that culture in the long term and building relationships and bridges with the people who are also interested in, in doing the real work. Be interesting to see who your unlikely friends uh, in this Congress <laughs> yeah, <exactly. emerge. laughs> Um I have some ideas for who who probably are likely not going to be close friends yeah. with you, but <laughs> yeah. um, all right, so uh, but I won't make you say it. Uh, so one uh, one last question that we ask everybody is what's giving you hope right now? Kind of an unfair question to ask a freshman uh, representative in this particular Congress. In the minority. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I think what gives me hope is that, well, my son gives me hope because I have to have hope. Uh, his future depends on what we're able to do. Yeah. I get choked up without thinking about it. Yeah. That's why we all do this work is for our kids. And uh, hopefully that's why we all do this work is is to make our kids' lives better and build a better future. And I have hope that we can do that. And when I look at somebody like you who, you know, struggled through what you struggled through and came out the other side and are advocating for people to make their lives better, it gives me a tremendous, tremendous amount of hope. And I'm uh, just like blessed and grateful to be somewhere in your orbit as you do this work. So thank you. That's so kind of you. I really appreciate that. But yeah, but I apologize. Well, I don't apologize um, (laughs) for getting (laughs) up. But, you know, we, this is, there are so many urgent needs that we need to address for this country and for people right now that are hurting for Davis's future when we look at climate change and and um, uh, making sure that he has a, a place to grow up and that Colorado continues to be a place where we can live and thrive. There is so much work to do. And, and I think it's, um, it's also the other people in Congress who are a, a much larger majority than the, the smaller percentage of, of people who are more interested in making headlines and saying, the craziest thing that day to get the attention. Um, it's the other people who are actually there for the right reasons, who are, who are trying to solve problems that give me hope as well. Yeah. You can just take the one of me choked up and then leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm happy to leave all of it. I, I, it's been a very moving uh, interview for me. I really appreciate your, your honesty and your heart. You know, um, that's really important that we show our heart when we're doing this important work. So thank you. Yes. No, thank you for sharing your story with me over dinner and sharing it with the people that listen to you every week, because um, it's really important that we start addressing the stigma that brings all of the barriers that we have for people getting the help that they need. And it's us telling our stories and putting a face to the people who are going through this and telling their story about how they got there and and what's what's possible when they have access to the right support. Absolutely. I I 
I don't think you know this. I didn't tell you this, but I'm actually uh, running for state assembly here in California. And no way. That's amazing. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, if you get to think about it and talk to people doing this work every day, then uh, that's incredible that you chose to step up. It's, you know, the the legislature, the, the state government is definitely uh, where my heart is. And I know that I, I will adjust federally and I'm so honored to be here. But, you know, you have such an opportunity to really impact people's lives. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> being a progressive coming into a supermajority in California uh, is very different than what you're facing right now <laughs> in Congress. Um, but uh, but I, the reason I brought it up is because I do tell my story of, you know, my being in recovery. And I was just thinking, well, it wasn't that long ago that Bill Clinton was saying that he like puffed but didn't inhale. Like you couldn't even talk about having smoking, uh, having you know, smoked pot or, or anything. And, and uh, so we've come a long way in terms of destigmatizing uh, substance use and, uh, and having people understand, as you said, it's a, it's a brain disease, you know. Um, so anyway, I'm digressing. But that is, I can't <laughs> believe that uh, th that is true. Um, although, I don't know, maybe he could have told the truth. <laughs> yeah, possible. <laughs> <laughs> Rep. Pedersen, I'm just grateful to you and, and thanks so much for being on the show. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to come back and hope to see you in D.C. as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. That's right. We'd love to hear from you. As always, send us an email at hello at howwewinpod.com or tweet to us at HowWeWinPod, at BluesBoySteve, and at Jen and Kona. Make sure you smash that subscribe button, rate and review on Apple, wherever you get your pods, and share our show with your friends and family. Smash it. There's always work to do, so we will be back with some more next Wednesday. <laughs>